So this summer we're in a sermon series that considers different prayers from Scripture. So we're kind of looking at different books of the Bible and um, going through uh, Old and New Testament, and we'll start in the New Testament next week. But we're looking at different kinds of prayer, and the question we're asking is, how do we pray? And so we learn from Scripture how we can do that. And today we're looking at Job's prayer when in suffering he worshipped and blessed the Lord's name. So how do you pray when you are hurting? Or do you pray when you're hurting? How do you pray when you are on the way from the doctor's office and you were just diagnosed with a terminal illness? How do you pray? What do you say to God in the car on the ride home? How do you pray if your child dies in the womb or dies in your arms? How do you pray? How do you pray when your spouse betrays and abandons you and your marriage is done? There's nothing you can do. How do you pray in the morning when you wake up and your body hurts and it hurts every day and it hurts all day long? How do you pray when your mind doesn't work the way it's supposed to and the thoughts you have in your mind are are not based on reality? but they feel so real to you. How do you pray? How do you pray when you lose your life savings? And what you hoped would happen in your life, at the end of your life in retirement, is just there's no chance of that happening now. How do you pray when your career is cut short by slander? Nothing that you did, nothing wrong, and yet it's now over. Your life is completely different now. How do you pray? Or do you pray? How do you pray? That's the question. And the answer we get in our text is clear. It's very clear. But it's hard to accept. And the answer is that during the time of suffering, we are to bless the Lord. We are to praise Him. That's the answer. That's what Job does. And Job is commended for doing that. He worships the Lord And it says that he did not sin in his response. So by worshiping, by blessing God's name, he does well. I'm dealing with a very difficult subject. And this is not the first time we're dealing with that and not the last. We're continuously going to return to this because this is the reality of most of our lives. We, We hurt, we suffer, things happen to us that we don't expect and they completely turn our lives upside down. Many in this congregation are hurting this morning. Many in our community are hurting this morning. So how do we deal with that? And when I talk about suffering, when I talk about blessing the Lord in your suffering, I want to make it very clear that I am not saying that you should not feel pain as you do that. I am not saying that our pain is not real, that we're not hurting. And I'm not suggesting that the Christian response to suffering should be just singing worship songs and ignoring your pain or even denying the reality of suffering. Job is hurting. He's hurting. There's no question that that he is hurting. And yet he is blessing the Lord in the midst of his pain. The Bible does not teach us to pretend that our pain is not real. Or, worse yet, to see our pain as evidence of our lack of faith. 
As in, if I'm hurting, I'm not trusting God. No, you can hurt and trust God at the same time. You can experience pain and still bless the Lord's name. So that's what the Bible teaches. That's what I'm saying this morning, that in your pain, we can bless the Lord. And now I have the rest of the sermon to prove to you that, that it's possible and that it's good and right for us to do so. So let us deal with this issue of suffering and praying in suffering honestly. I want us to see our suffering from the perspective of God's word, which of course is the only true and accurate perspective. And we are using the book of Job, the book of the Bible that deals directly with suffering. We're going to use this one passage, but I'll, I'll do an overview of the book as well. Partly because I'm very excited I figured it out. Uh, on Friday, I was working on the sermon, and a pastor walked in. I was at Starbucks. Another pastor walked in, and, and we chatted, and he asked me what I was doing. And I said, well, I'm working on the sermon on Job. And I said, I can't, I don't understand the book of Job. And we kind of, you know, chuckled and laughed. And, and then about half hour later, I was, I was passing by him, and I said, hey, I figured it out. <laughs> and I feel like I really did. So I, I'm, I'm excited to share it with you if you've struggled with the book of Job, I think this may be helpful to you. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to have a lengthy introduction, which I will try to do the overview of the book and kind of hit on the, I think, which, what I think is the key to understanding it. And then I'll make just two points, okay? So don't be put off by the lengthy introduction. Just consider it as one of the points, okay? So let me, let me tell you um, about Job. Three times in the book of Job, and twice by God himself, Job is described as a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He's very wealthy, and wealth is measured in livestock and servants. He has seven sons and three daughters. That's the perfect, that's the Bible's way of describing a perfect family. Uh, he, which means that he's, the future of his family, the future of his clan is secure, his legacy is secure. It's hard to imagine his life going any better than it had. I think everything that the text tells us to show you is that he had a great life. He had a great reputation. He's one of the greatest people in the East. He's, he is wealthy. His family is great. Everything is, is excellent. Until Satan, with God's permission, starts taking Job's blessings away. And one day... Job lost his servants and all of his livestock to two separate raids by neighboring tribes and a raging fire. On top of that, some kind of tornado struck the house in which his children were having a party and all of them were killed. So all ten children are killed. And then later, Job himself is afflicted with painful sores all over his body, unbearable physical pain. So he goes from having a great life to, to having lost everything he had. All that he has left is his life. That's all he has left. His body is, is hurting. He can barely function. He loses his children. He loses his wealth. He loses his reputation. And he's left just with his life. Now, I want you to see that this is a classic example of an innocent person suffering. There, there's no, seemingly no reason for his suffering. He didn't do anything wrong. 
This is a classic example of something bad happening to someone who's good. This is not a situation where somebody made a bunch of mistakes and bad things happen and you can kind of understand. This is an example where you can't understand what's happening. It's mysterious, it's inexplicable. And he is right in the midst of that situation and this is where he praises the Lord. His initial response to losing his wealth and his children is remarkable. He does not sin by charging God with wrong. Instead, he worships God and blesses God's name. And then when Job's wife watches, who's also suffering, she's also suffering. She's not a bystander. She, she lost her children. She lost her wealth. And she goes to Job, who is now hurting, and, and he's just in this vivid picture. He's scratching his sores with a piece of broken pottery. This is how much it hurts. He's sitting on the, on the heap of ashes. And his wife comes to him and she says, do you still hold fast your integrity? Meaning, are you still faithful to God? Curse God and die. Curse him and die. That's her advice. <clears throat> and Job responds, again, remarkably responds, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? Which means he sees what's happening to him as a disaster inexplicable disaster. And still, he does not sin against God. Even in this horrible circumstances, he blesses the Lord, blesses his name, and holds fast to his commitment to God. Now, it's, it's important to notice that after all the speeches, which most of the book are speeches of different people to Job and Job responding to them, after all of that, after all the complaining and lamenting that Job does, even after being rebuked by God, Job's response to suffering is still approved by God. Now, this is important for us to see that. In chapter 42, verse 7, God tells Job's friends, those miserable comforters, he tells them, my anger burns against you. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Job is still approved of God. God says, you did well. You responded well to suffering. Not perfectly, but rightly. His perspective was right, and he is commended by God for that. Now, these are the facts. That's what the book is about. But what is happening behind the scenes? This is very important. If you read the book, you know that God is engaged in a sort of a wager with Satan. Satan comes to God and says, I've been wandering all over this earth, and I'm seeing all sorts of things happening. And God says, have you noticed my servant Job? God actually directs Satan's attention to Job. He says, have you noticed this blameless man who loves me and who worships me, who rejects evil and pursues good? Have you noticed him? And so Satan says, well, I have noticed him, but he only does that because you bless him. You see, you put this hedge around him, and you protect him from all evil. And of course, of course he, he worships you. Who wouldn't worship you if, you if you do that for them? Now here's what I want us to understand, and this is what unlocked the book of Job for me. And, and if you know this already, just bear with me, okay? This is new to me, and this is very exciting to me. If it's new to you, I think you will understand the book of Job with me. Okay. The book of Job describes a clash of worldviews. It's a clash of theologies. Two ideas are, are set against each other. 
Satan says, that's his worldview, people obey and worship God only because and as long as they receive blessings from him. That's a worldview. That's a theology. That's what Satan says. That people only worship God and worship him for as long as they are blessed by him. So if you receive blessings from God, of course you're going to worship him and obey him. That's what Satan thinks Job is doing. God has been incredibly good to him. He has given him wealth, children, health, reputation, influence. He's protected him from all sorts of evil. And Satan says, of course, he worships God. But God says, and this is God's perspective, this is God's worldview, which is opposed to Satan's worldview. God says that people can obey and worship me simply because of who I am, even if they do not immediately see the benefit of their allegiance to me. These two worldviews clash in Job's life. This is the book. <laughs> and, and God is doing this on purpose to show us the difference and to win us over to his worldview. Job is our servant. He goes through this terrible experience to show us, to help us understand how we are to deal with our suffering. And, and the whole book hinges on, these, on this contrast between these two theologies, two worldviews. And God wants to show us that his worldview is right and Satan's worldview is wrong. Listen to D.A. Carson, a commentator who really, I think, is tremendously helpful in this book. Carson says, God's intent is to show that a human being can love God, fear God, and pursue righteousness without receiving any prompt reward. This pursuit of God is therefore independent of material comfort. It may be in defiance of material comfort. Satan's thesis that all religious interest is ultimately grounded in self-interest or worse, in mercenary commitment, is thus shown to be false. That's the book. That's the key to understanding the book of Job. It forces us to take sides. If you read the book of Job correctly, you leave with the choice, and you're saying, am I going to side with God here and Job and agree that people can worship God and fear Him and obey Him even if we don't, don't see the reward immediately? Or am I going to side with Satan and say that I only worship him when he rewards me, when he blesses me? Job, as he struggles and hurts, and he is doing that, and he's complaining, and he's, he's bringing all sorts of questions to God, but he does it from the right worldview. He does it from the right theology. And Job's friends are reprimanded by God because their worldview is more in line with Satan's than with God's. Now listen to Carson again. He says, At no point does Job abandon faith in God. At no point does he follow his wife's advice to curse God. It is precisely because he knows God to be there, to be loving and just, that he has such a hard time understanding such injustice. Job wrestles with God. He is indignant with God. He challenges God to come before him and provide some answers. But all his struggles are the struggles of a believer. That is why Job can be praised by God himself for saying the right things. At least 
He spoke within the right framework. His miserable friends did not. Now, this is where it gets intensely practical for us. How we pray in suffering, or whether we pray in suffering at all, reveals our worldview. It reveals our theology, our understanding of God. Our response to pain reveals whether we side with God or with Satan. This is what it is. Am I being too dramatic? I don't think so. I think I'm being consistent with the book of Job. There are two sides, there are two ideas, there are two worldviews in how we respond to suffering, to pain, especially as we address God in it, would reveal what you think of Him, what you think of yourself, what you think of how life should be. Uh, Tim Keller says, prayer turns theology into experience. Prayer turns theology into experience. What does your prayer in suffering say about your view of God? The book of Job wants us to deal with two particular aspects of this theology, of this worldview, of how we see God. Namely, God's greatness and God's grace. And those are my two points, and I'm going to get into these two points now. In our suffering, we either praise God because we believe He is great and gracious, or we abandon God because we do not believe He is great or gracious. Let's work through these two ideas. Number one, we bless God because He is great. Now look at what Job says in, in uh, chapter 1, verse 21. He says, Naked I came into my from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He is blessing God, even as he is experiencing this incredible loss. He worships God. Now, when God blesses us, we understand that, don't we? He gives us things that we need. He, he fills a lack of something in our lives. That's what blessing is. He gives us something we need. He makes us different. He makes us better. But when we bless God, we can't make him better. He's already perfect. We can't give him something he needs. He doesn't actually need our praise. When we bless God, what we, what we do is we affirm his greatness. We simply acknowledge his greatness. We reflect his greatness back to him. When we praise God, when we bless God, we're basically saying to him and to others that he is perfect, that he lives in the state of eternal blessedness, that there's no flaw in him, that he is absolutely great. That's what it means to bless him, to, to praise him. We acknowledge that he is great. And that's what Job was doing. He says, regardless of what I, what I have received from you or what you have taken away from me, you are great in yourself and you are worthy of my praise. So Job was looking beyond his circumstances and he's looking at God himself and he discovers that God in himself is great and worthy of our praise. Now Satan's claim is that people only acknowledge God's greatness when they experience his goodness in their lives. When they stop seeing God as good to them, they stop praising him. But Job 
praises God even after he lost all of God's blessings. And so the question we must wrestle with in our own suffering, in our own pain, is this. Is God always great? Or is he only great when he is good to me? Is God always great, regardless of my circumstances? Or, he is, or is he only great when he is good to me? When I see his greatness in my life? Job's answer is, God is great because of who God is. God is always great, and he is always worthy of our praise. It's a theological commitment that he has. He understands God to be perfect in himself. And so even when pain hits him, he's able to look at God and say, God, you, you are to be blessed, you are to be praised, because you are perfect. That's why he can praise God even after losing his children, even after losing his wealth. There's a difference between thanking God and praising God. Now, we use those terms interchangeably often, and that's fine. But there is a difference between gratitude and between gratitude and praise. Of course, according to Satan, there isn't. You see, Satan thinks thanking God and praising God is the same thing because we only praise him in response to what he gives us. But according to God and according to Job, there is a difference between gratitude and praise. We are thankful because of the things he does for us because of what he gives us. And it is appropriate to be thankful. It is good to be thankful. It is commanded in scripture to be thankful. We are to be grateful people. However, there's another level here. And that level is praising him for who he is and not only thanking him for what he does for us. It's beyond gratitude. Now, gratitude is, is good. I am not discouraging you from being grateful. But I am encouraging you to be also praising him for who he is apart from what he does in your life. We need to be able to praise God for his greatness even when there is seemingly nothing to be grateful for. Because God does not change. If he was great when you had his blessings, he is still great when you don't. To be thankful is good, but to worship God for who he is in himself, to bless the name of the Lord, whether he gives or he takes away, this is an entirely new level of relationship with God. Have you learned the difference between gratitude and praise? If you haven't, only if you suffer, only if you lose something precious, only then can you learn the difference between gratitude and praise. Until then, you can only be grateful. But if you lose something, a blessing from God, and you still praise him, and like Job, in your pain, sitting on a heap of ashes, scraping your body with a piece of pottery, you say, blessed be the name of the Lord. You've moved from gratitude to worship. And that's very different. Both are good, but they're different. According to Satan, they're the same. Because we only praise God when he does nice things for us. And when he stops doing that, we stop praising him. 
But according to God, there is a difference between gratitude and praise. Now, at the end of the book, in chapter 38, God appears to Job. And remember, Job had all these questions that he's been asking. And when God comes to him, he doesn't answer any of his questions. Have you noticed that? There, there are actually no answers to Job's questions. The book doesn't help us with that. But what does God do when he appears to Job? For four chapters, the Lord talks about his greatness. Greatness that is not connected to Job's life. This is quite apart from Job's circumstances. God talks about creation. He talks about his wisdom in making these different creatures and putting things in order. He talks about his power. For four chapters, the Lord simply takes Job back to who God is and emphasizes his attributes, his ability to do these great things and his wisdom. And as he does that, Job gets it. He does. He gets that, that he did well by going to God and blessing his name and praising him for who he is. And yes, he has faltered, of course. He has not done it perfectly. And he has to return to that when God appears. He has to reroute himself in that reality again. But Job's framework is right. God is great regardless of what happens in your life. God is still great, and God reminds Job of that. John Calvin said that when we approach God, we must abandon all thoughts of, thoughts of our own glory. We must abandon all thoughts of our own glory. When we do not praise God in suffering, we declare that we have assessed God's nature based on our circumstances and concluded that he is not great. When you do not worship God in your suffering, what you're saying is that I've examined the evidence and I have concluded, and my opinion is that God is not great. So I will not worship him. He doesn't deserve my worship. And of course, Satan says that's absolutely right. That's completely consistent with the right worldview. But Job says, no. Regardless of my circumstances, God is still great. And I will worship him, and I will praise him, and I will bless his name regardless of my pain, through my pain, in my pain. When we praise God in our pain, we abandon all thoughts of our own glory and affirm his eternal, unchangeable greatness. And we say that regardless of my opinion of you, God, you are still God. You are who you are. You're still as wise and powerful as you've ever been. And so I will treat you as God, which means I will worship you. I'll bless your name. God pointed to his power and wisdom in creation to remind Job of his greatness. That's chapter 38 and, and the following four chapters. But we have an even greater example of God's greatness to look at. If you read the book, Job longs for a redeemer. He's dreaming of somebody to come between him and God and to help him with this mystery of suffering. Somebody to reaffirm that God is good, that God is, is great, that God is gracious. He's, he's longing, he's looking for someone. He, he's longing for, for someone to be there to bring him and God together. 
we know who the Redeemer is. We know who he is. The one that Job longed for, we know him. We've met him. And so when we think about God's greatness, we cannot think of God's greatness outside of what Jesus has done for us. And when you go to see who Jesus is and what he's done, you realize how great God is and you can bless his name even in your pain. Jesus Christ is God and man. And he came to stand between God and us and to reconcile us to God. In Jesus, the great God who created everything in wisdom and power becomes a creature, becomes part of creation, becomes human. And God endures suffering himself. The God-man took the sins of humanity upon himself and suffered for us. The innocent for the guilty, the godly for the ungodly. The only thing that was off limits to Satan was Job's life. Remember that God said, you can do anything you want, but do not take his life. But Jesus gave his life on the cross. And then he took it up again in the resurrection. This is our great God. This is who he is. Yes, creation shows God's greatness. It does. But redemption redemption. We must marvel that God was born, that he died for our sins, that he rose again. That's marvelous. But we must praise him, not only because he did it and because it matters to us and because it helps us, but also because he is a God who would do that kind of thing. We praise him not only because he did it, but because he would do that Because in his nature, he is the kind of God that in his wisdom would come up with this and in his power would accomplish it. That's why our God is great. And when you are suffering, when I'm suffering, when we're hurting, that's the same God. And he remains consistently great because of who he is. This is the same God. And so we can't say that when I'm hurting you, God, you stop being great. Jesus died and rose again and is coming again. That is unchangeable by my pain. We must bless his name because he is a great God. And secondly, this is my second and last point. We bless God because he is gracious. So the first clash of the worldviews, we saw that Satan says, we only praise God when he does something good for us, means that he's only great when he does great things for me. And so my obedience, my worship is dependent on him. My view of him as great is dependent on what he does. And God says, no, I'm great all the time, and I deserve worship all the time. Two different ideas. And the second clash of worldviews has to do with God's grace. Now look again at verse 21. Job says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in chapter 2, verse 10... Job says, this is after his health is taken away, he says, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? Now the point here is that God gives and we receive. He gives by grace. He's not obligated to give, which is why he can take it away. But he gives and we receive because he is a God of grace. But that is not how Satan sees God. 
Satan sees God as a negotiator. Satan claims that people relate to God on the basis of deals we make with him. Satan said, Job worships God because God blesses him. If God stops blessing him, Job will not feel obligated to worship him anymore. That's what Job's wife says. She says, if you live this way, and this is what God does, why are you still holding on to God? Curse him and die. This is Satan's worldview. And many religious people see their relationship with God exactly in this way. God is a negotiator. He's a deal maker. So when suffering comes, if we have that worldview, we have two responses. One, we look to see where we have not, where we look in ourselves, in our lives, and we, we want to discover where we have not kept our end of the deal. If we find something in our lives that shows that we have not been faithful to God, if we fail to do what we are supposed to do, well then we consider God no longer obligated to protect us from suffering. This is why when suffering happens to Christians, many Christians, the first thought is, what have I done wrong? What did I do that, that warrants this suffering? Because we think of God as a deal maker. We had a deal with God that if we do well, he does well for us. And if he's doing something bad to us, that means I did something wrong. I've not kept my end of the deal, so now he's not keeping his end of the deal. And we blame ourselves. The second response is that we look to see whether God has kept his end of the deal. And since he's doing these awful things to us, that means that God has not kept his end of the bargain. So then we feel released from our obligation and we stop worshiping him. So many people lose their faith, leave the church, stop pursuing God altogether when something bad happens to them. Why do they do that? Because they, they saw God as a deal maker. And God failed to keep his end of the deal. And so I am now under no obligation to keep my end of the deal. So I don't need to worship him. I don't need to obey him. He didn't do it right by me, so I don't need to follow him anymore. This is Satan's worldview. This is exactly what the book of Job was arguing against. If you see God as a deal maker, if you see God as somebody that has to do things for you so you would do things for him, or that responds to how well we do things for him and that what determines his blessings and curses in our lives, this is Satan's worldview. Now let me give you a silly illustration, okay? I've been watching Frasier. Have you seen that TV show, Frasier? I know these transitions are awkward. I realize that. <laughs> this is a, a silly, humorous illustration that reveals a deep spiritual reality that most of us are grappling with. Now here's the illustration. Main character... Frazier Crane is a psychiatrist and very insecure and um, has many personal issues. And his brother Niles has a serious heart condition. He's going into surgery, and Frazier makes a deal with God. He promises God that he would stop arguing with his brother, which that's their relationship. They just argue together. 
he promises God that he would stop arguing and being mean to his brother if God brings his brother through the surgery. If Niles does well, Fraser will stop arguing with Niles. However, and he does that for a few days after the surgery, he's surprisingly nice to him. He doesn't enter into any conflict with him. Everybody's alarmed by that. They don't know what's going on. Then we later find out that Fraser had made that deal with God. However, Fraser later learns that Niles' wife had made her own deal with God, even before Fraser made his deal with God. The night before, Daphne promised God that if Niles would survive the surgery and if he would be fine, that she would help the poor, that she would gather food for, for the poor. Once Fraser finds out that there was another deal in place before he made his deal, he realizes this is an opportunity for him to get out of his obligation. And this is what he says. This is his, his prayer. He says, hello, God. This is me again, Dr. Fraser Crane. It seems that when we made our little arrangement, there was another deal in place. I've had some experience with double booking, and I know that the person who books first always gets priority. So as long as Daphne keeps, keeps up her end, which she is to the letter, it seems our little arrangement would be rendered null and void. Ergo, I am now going to yell at my brother. <laughs> Funny, but this kind of relationship with God is common to most people, even people in the church. This is Satan's worldview. Seeing God as a negotiator. Seeing God as a deal maker. Seeing God as somebody who keeps his promises only if we keep our promises. Who expects to bless us if we do our part. Who, if he blesses us, expects that we respond with worship and praise. This is Satan's worldview. And God is not like that. And the gospel isn't like that. And true Christianity isn't like that. The gospel is completely different from this. In fact, to be a Christian is to believe in a God of grace. To be a Christian is to believe that we are accepted with God by grace because of what Jesus did for us. This is what defines Christianity, is that I don't believe that God negotiates. I don't believe that God makes deals. I believe that God did something for me on the cross, that God did something for me in the empty tomb, and that defines my relationship with him forever. That's the gospel. I'm accepted with him not because I have kept my part of the deal, but because he did the whole thing. And he gives this life to me. He gives this faith to me. He gives these blessings to me because he is gracious, God of grace. Do you believe that? Let me put it differently. Are you a Christian? Because that's, that's what defines what Christianity is. If you believe that God is a God of grace and not a negotiator. When Jesus came to save us, he did not come because we had kept our part of the deal. He didn't come and he said, okay, where are the people that have got everything ready for me? That have done everything I've instructed them to do. And so now I can do my part and save them. That is not how it happened. When he came, he was rejected. 
by the people he came to save. Who kept their part of the deal? Not us. And because he's a God of grace, he blessed us anyway. Because he's a God of grace, he saves us anyway. One writer puts it this way. God hanging on the cross for the salvation of the world is not a negotiating God. On the cross, God is not setting up the terms of a contract that humanity needs to fulfill. God isn't saying, I died for you, now you've got to do what I tell you to do. Instead, God is given God's own self so that humanity may have life, and life abundant. God is not a negotiator, God is a giver. He's not a negotiator, he's a giver. And if God is not a negotiator or deal maker, but he is a giver, a God of grace, then we can only receive what he gives. And if we receive what we deem to be good, we must also receive what we deem to be bad from him. And because he is a God of grace, what we deem to be bad will ultimately turn out to be good. Because he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The book ends, the book of Job ends with God's restoring Job's fortunes, an ending that has puzzled many commentators. He's blessed with more livestock than he had, than he lost, with more money than he had before. His reputation is restored. He is now seven sons and three daughters, so his family is restored. He lives a long life. He prospers. Why does God do that? Why does he end the book in this way? If he does it to reward Job for his faith, God essentially sides with Satan's worldview and shows that he is a negotiating, deal-making God because Job kept his part of the deal, so now he receives all of it back. That doesn't make any sense. And if you read the book of Job this way, it doesn't make any sense. Also, we might get an impression that God thinks Job's pain was not warranted. After all, he had nothing to worry about. Everything was going to be restored anyway. Why cry? Why sit on the the heap of ashes? Why hurt if God was going to restore it anyway? However, the children are still dead. Yeah, he got new children, but those children are still dead. That pain doesn't go away. So what is God doing here? Why is this ending of restoration of of Job's fortunes? Here's what I think God is doing. He's not so much restoring everything that Job had lost as he is showing that restoration is possible. I think the ending of the book hints at the great truth that God is always good to his people, that all losses will somehow be restored. It's not restored completely yet in Job's life, but there's enough evidence at the end of his life to say that God is restoring, that there is meaning in suffering, that all that he does is good for his people, that he's not just great because he's God, and he's not just gracious because that's how he operates and he works with us that way but also that he is great, gracious, and good to us. Even when we can't see it, even when restoration is not complete, 
but it is coming. God is always good to his people. All losses will somehow be eventually restored. And because God is great, he's powerful and he's wise, and because God is gracious, at the end we learn that he is always good to his people. Even when God takes away, he gives. Even when we receive evil from him, we receive good. Because he is consistently gracious. The God of the resurrection does not waste your suffering. Yes, suffering is a mystery in many ways to us. But behind it stands a God of grace who never fails his people. Listen to Jerry Bridges. God never allows pain without a purpose in the lives of his children. He never allows Satan nor circumstances nor any ill-intending person to afflict us unless he uses that affliction for our good. God never wastes pain. He always causes it to work together for our ultimate good, the good of conforming us more to the likeness of his Son. What could be better than to become like Jesus? This is another sermon. I'm not preaching it today, okay? But that's the point. Whatever God is doing in your life, He's ultimately doing it for your good, and you will see it someday. You will see it. Everything will be restored. But today, we learn that even in our pain, God remains great, and he does not stop loving us by grace. And if we know this, if we know that God is both great and gracious, which means that he's good to us, if we know that, if that theology is real for us, if our, that worldview is actually our worldview, if it's deep in our hearts, then we can bless his name even in our pain. When the morning falls on the farthest hill, I will sing his name, I will praise him still. When dark trials come and my heart is filled with the weight of doubt, I will praise him still.